This is episode 163 of That Shakespeare Life. The video version for today's episode is available inside the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. Our video version always includes bonus images and archival information that we aren't able to share in the audio of our podcast. Find the full video version of today's episode at castycash.com slash app. That's castycash.com slash A-P-P. Hi, I'm Rebecca Lemon, professor of English at the University of Southern California and author of Addiction and Devotion in Early Modern England. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. So what is a crocodile? A crocodile is a serpent, which the English naturalist, roughly a contemporary of Shakespeare, Edward Topsell, defines in this way. Like a lizard in all points, excepting the tail and the quantity of a lizard, which is to say it's much, much bigger. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare mentions the word crocodile five times in his plays, but crocodiles not being native to England must have been introduced to the bard from outside his natural habitat in London. The crocodile itself was well known in English literature, having been written about in association with Egypt and Africa by writers like Pliny the Elder centuries prior to Shakespeare. This particular beast was brought back to the forefront of popular imagination during Shakespeare's lifetime, however, when explorers to the New World came home with stories of a new creature, similar to the crocodile, but unique to North America, named the alligator. The alligator is mentioned only once in Shakespeare's works in Act 5, Scene 1 of Romeo and Juliet, where it's included on a list of items on display in an apothecary shop. That reference is particularly interesting when you consider that a display of natural specimens in an apothecary shop is very likely one of the real places Shakespeare could have seen an alligator. Here to take us back to the mid-1590s as Shakespeare wrote about the alligator in Romeo and Juliet and explain for us what the 16th century science was behind alligators and crocodiles is our guest, Spencer Weinreich. Spencer Weinreich is a PhD candidate in the history of science at Princeton University, writing a dissertation on the history of solitary confinement. His scholarship on early modern religion, natural philosophy, and historiography has appeared in Early Science and Medicine, Journal of Ecclesiastical History, Social History of Medicine, Journal of the History of Ideas, History Workshop Journal, and Renaissance Quarterly, among others. He joins us today to discuss his article on crocodiles in early modern England that we'll link for you in today's show notes. Hello, Spencer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. In Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, Lepidus asks the appropriate question, what manner of thing is your crocodile? Spencer, this question is particularly interesting in context of history because neither crocodiles nor alligators are native to England, which begs the question, would Shakespeare have known what these creatures are when he was writing about them? So he certainly knows more about them than Lepidus does, though that's not saying all that much. Um, but he actually knows a fair amount. So there's a couple of things to keep in mind when we talk about what uh, Shakespeare and what Elizabethan Londoners would have known 
about something like a crocodile. The first is that they are, whether they know it or not, and Shakespeare definitely knows it, the inheritors of a really long natural history tradition that stretches back to the ancient Greeks. We think of Herodotus, we think of Aristotle, we think of Pliny. And that this tradition is not only a long textual tradition, it's actively going on in Elizabethan England and in early modern Europe. We have natural philosophers and explorers trying to understand the world, writing about it, reading about it, drawing it, circulating. And this tradition blends together both what we might think of as scientific or physical data. So what does a crocodile look like? Well, it's a big, scaly reptile with big jaws, lots of teeth, found mostly in North Africa. And what we might call lore, so the stories and the cultural associations that go with a creature. For example, the crocodile is a symbol of Egypt and of Africa more generally. It's assumed that it has no tongue. It's believed that it grows all the way through its life and only stops when it dies. And we still do this today. You think about, for example, the tortoise and the hare, the bald eagle, the pig. We associate emotions, character traits, geographies with animals. Second point to remember is that the Elizabethan world is nowhere near as rigidly or firmly taxonomized as ours is. Shakespeare hasn't read Linnaeus because Linnaeus hasn't been born yet. And it's not that the early modern observers don't categorize. They love categorizing. They're all about categorizing. But they use different categories and their categories work differently. You know, to coin a phrase, there are more things in Shakespeare's heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. They have dragons, they have phoenixes, they have basilisks. And even the creatures and things that we're familiar with seem to have lost all sorts of powers and properties that they had in Shakespeare's day. So toads no longer have diamonds in the middle of their heads, and garlic no longer neutralizes magnets. The world's gotten a bit more boring in terms of what, what these creatures can do. And the third and final point is creatures like crocodiles, objects like scales and taxonomized crocodiles, uh, or sorry, taxidermied crocodiles, are being eagerly traded throughout the world, right? This is a, a country and a continent that is alive with a trade in exotic objects from all over the world, from Asia, from Africa, from the Americas. So there's a lot that's coming into and going out of early modern London that are not native to Britain. So what is a crocodile? A crocodile is a serpent, which the English naturalist, roughly a contemporary of Shakespeare, Edward Topsell, defines in this way. Quote, all venomous beasts, whether creeping without legs as adders and snakes, or with legs as crocodiles and lizards, or more nearly compacted bodies as toads, spiders, and bees. So it's a pretty broad category and also includes the more fanciful creatures like the dragon. And Topsell gives a pretty rich account of the crocodile, which he describes as like a lizard in all points, excepting the tail and the quantity of a lizard, which is to say it's much, much bigger. Um, and he goes into all sorts of physical detail. It's got a nose that resembles a pig's. Uh, it's got a hide that's impenetrable to spears and swords. It's got a ravenous appetite. It's got lots of teeth, but no tongue, as well as its behavior and its relations with all sorts of other creatures, human and animal. And of course, lots of references to lore and scholarship 
since ancient Greece. And similar information would have been available in any number of other natural histories and other works that Shakespeare and any other reader in early modern London would have had access to, plus tons of illustrations, some of them very fanciful, some of them clearly drawn by someone who's never seen a crocodile, but some of them stunningly accurate, deeply detailed, and instantly recognizable to us. So Shakespeare has a wealth of information at his fingertips about what crocodiles look like, how they act, where they come from, and what the finest minds of the last three millennia have known or thought they knew about them. Plus, he's probably seen preserved specimens. Spencer writes that, quote, established cultural systems sustained a profound shock from Europe's encounter with the Americas. The existence of entire continents filled with peoples and creatures known neither to the gospel nor to the writers of antiquity delivered a body blow to Europe's mental construct of the world, end quote. Spencer, you mentioned that Shakespeare might have seen taxidermic crocodiles on display there in London, but were alligators considered one of these surprise creatures that were discovered in the New World? Well, alligators are usually surprising. Um, you know, you don't That's usually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what I always think about. I mean, you have to put yourself in the in the boots of a European explorer or colonizer, sort of wandering through an unfamiliar landscape. They probably don't have a map, and if they have a map, it may not be very good. Uh, and there's trees and birds and other things that you don't recognize, and you have no idea where you are. And all of a sudden, there's something big in the water with eyes and scales and a hell of a lot of teeth. And so even if you've read all about old world crocodiles, even if you've seen one before, which most would not have, and certainly not alive and biting at you, that's pretty shocking. Surprising might be mild when you put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And there are are all sorts of stories about alligators in South America growing up to 100 feet in length, according to some missionaries. And others report that, you know, the non-Christian indigenous peoples either worship them or eat them or both. You know, they're the sort of monster you expect to find in an unexpected continent. Uh, And so much so they actually become the emblematic animal of the Americas. You know, when a map maker or a sculptor or a painter is trying to depict America as a personified, you know, usually a sort of pseudo-Roman goddess type of a thing, Um, One of the most common ways to do this is you have a woman in a what is imagined to be a suitable costume riding on a suitable animal. And for a long time, Africa rides a crocodile in homage to the Egyptian tradition, and America rides an armadillo. But over time, America starts to have an alligator. And there's even a really beautiful statue uh, at the Palace of Versailles Uh, outside Paris, where Africa and America kind of ride share a crocodile. That's an amazing painting. I didn't know about this. Where can we see this? You said it was outside the Palace of Versailles? Sorry, so it's it's a statue. It's a marble statue in the gardens at Versailles, you know, the great uh, French royal palace outside of Paris. It's by Etienne Longre. Uh, It's a 17th century sculpture, and it has... America and Africa ride-sharing a crocodile, you might call it, and kind of seated very comfortably side by side on this crocodile, alligator, whatever you want to call it. We will link to this statue in the show notes for today's episode so you can see this. So make sure you go there to check that out. Spencer points out in his work that a 
similar animal, the crocodile, was well known to Europe during Shakespeare's lifetime, having been associated with writing like by Pliny the Elder and even incorporated into European iconography by the time Shakespeare was writing about them. Spencer, if Shakespeare and his contemporaries had all these sources that you mentioned to be familiar with crocodiles, why was the alligator surprising to them? They are distinctly different animals, but to a novice, certainly, they're not really easy to tell apart without practice. No, they're not. Uh, They're not. And it may be that awe is a better way of thinking about it than surprise, particularly by Shakespeare's time. You know, by the time Shakespeare mentions the alligator in Romeo and Juliet, for example, it's more than a century since Columbus's voyage. You know, the process of digesting who and what Columbus crashed into has been underway for several generations. There's been a lot of ink spilled. There's been a lot of blood spilled and a lot of you know, money changing hands to try and understand what this quote unquote new world is. But then again, we have to understand that 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 process still has a few more centuries to run, right? Europeans and in time, European Americans are fighting their way through two vast continents and hundreds of islands with all sorts of strange and wondrous peoples and things from the extraordinary empires of the Inca and the Aztecs to animals like macaws and alligators to tomatoes and and other, you know, chocolate and and all the other kind of wonderful things that come through the uh, Colombian exchange. So the alligator kind of lurks in the midst of all this strangeness and arguments over what it is and how it got there, and what relation, if any at all, it has to this beast that looks very, very similar back in Egypt or India, is part of a much bigger process of Europe making sense of the Americas. So to claim that the alligator and the crocodile are identical is one way of bridging the gap. And there's something very satisfying in finding in the new world a creature so thoroughly associated with the most ancient civilizations of the old world. And it makes a very powerful statement to say, yes, we found this new world, but we can understand it because, look, here's this creature that we have known in the Mediterranean for millennia. On the other hand, to claim that they're totally different, as people do, you know, is one way of emphasizing that the new world is in fact new, that it's strange and wondrous and interesting and totally different. And so there's lots of different ways of deciding what a creature is, deciding whether it is in fact something different. Is alligator just another word for crocodile? Is it a crocodile that isn't fully grown yet? Are they completely different species? All of these are strategies, as indeed are all the category questions of the new world, for putting together a coherent picture of nature, of the cosmos. But the main thing for Shakespeare and especially for his audience is that crocodiles and alligators are exotic creatures. They're found out there in strange places among strange peoples. And so they have this very powerful aura of mystery and menace, which is, of course, heightened by the way they look and they're huge and they're scary. 
In the biblical book of Job, an impressive and intimidating creature called a Leviathan is described in detail. Scholars today still debate exactly what creature is being described as a Leviathan in this part of the Bible, but Spencer, for Shakespeare, would the contemporary mindset have defined the Leviathan as a crocodile? So I would imagine that most Elizabethan Londoners would have defined Leviathan as Leviathan right? This is the fabulous monster that God himself describes in the book of Job. This is the very pinnacle of the divine creative power. God describes this extraordinary creature that kind of rules over the seas as a way of demonstrating God's own might and sovereign authority over the universe itself as a way of kind of saying to Job, you know, who do you think you are? So, That said, when Elizabethan Londoners imagine Leviathan, when they hear that verse read from the book of Job, what they're conjuring up, you know, huge, dangerous reptilian creature associated with water, lots of scales, lots of teeth, uh, and on and on, you know, is not that far off from a crocodile, not least because many of the illustrators and artists that they might have been thinking of are looking to the crocodile or the alligator for inspiration. Later on, you know, a generation or two after Shakespeare passes from the scene, you start to have exegetes and biblical interpreters like the Frenchman Samuel Beauchard, who writes this stupendously learned book called the Hierozoicon, which is basically, you know, his thoughts on all of the animals in the Bible. And At that point, it becomes very important to a certain set of interpreters to pin down, you know, what Leviathan actually was or or what inspires it or, you know, is it describing something real in the world that we can see? And the two main contenders are the crocodile and the whale for Leviathan. I obviously favor the crocodile view, uh, but, you know, as you say, there's still a lot of debate over that. Uh, And there are other suggestions floating around for what it might be. But in Shakespeare's day, if anything, it's it's kind of the other way around. You know, they're actually defining crocodiles as leviathans. Leviathan is the sort of the king of the serpents, if you will, you know, the Godzilla of his day, right? Leviathan is the archetype of that category that tops the serpents, the serpent. So when you see a crocodile, when you think about a crocodile, one of the first things that you think about is leviathan. Um, And there's a really marvelous illustration of this, uh, again, later, but kind of speaks to this sense that this is what you think of when you see this giant, scaly, magnificent reptile. In 1681, Nehemiah Grew, a wonderful naturalist and, and kind of natural philosopher, puts together a catalog of the collection belonging to the Royal Society of London. They have one of these wonderful collections of specimens and and objects of curiosity. And they have the skeleton of a crocodilian. And he labels it in his catalog, Crocodile or the Leviathan. And it's that association, which is much older than Gru and much older than Shakespeare, and may, as I say, go all the way back to the authors of the Book of Job, that sees preserved crocodiles hung up from church ceilings which is a very common medieval tradition. And it's a kind of visual response to something that God says to Job. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? And this is the church saying, yes, we can. You know, this is the church saying, 
we, we hang up the crocodile from the ceiling with a hook because this is a symbol of Christianity's triumph over evil represented by, look, we've got a Leviathan. While there are five uses of the word crocodile across Shakespeare's work, as Spencer points out, the only mention of the alligator in Shakespeare's works appears in Romeo and Juliet, where the alligator is listed alongside, quote, the skins of other ill-shaped fishes, end quote, as a stuffed animal on display in an apothecary shop. Spencer, by the mid-1590s when Romeo and Juliet was written, would there have been real stuffed alligators on display around London outside of these church displays? So there probably aren't any left in the church displays because, you know, they kind of went out with the Reformation, sad to say. But there were almost certainly preserved crocodiles on display in something like an apothecary's shop. So, you know, as, as I said at the beginning, right, the early modern period is mad for exotic animals, plants, objects, even you know, some of them alive, some of them preserved, some of them skeletal, some of them completely fake. You know, you get all sorts of dragons and, and mermaids and whatnot that, that uh, are kind of fabrications. And London merchants are in regular contact with parts of the world where you can find crocodilians. So the American tropics, North and West Africa, South Asia. And it's just the kind of curiosity that you're going to get a good price for if you can bring it back to Europe. You know, you think of the line in The Tempest about how much England loves a monster, right? Any strange beast there makes a man. And because England does more trade with the Americas than with, say, Egypt or India, you know, it's more likely to have been a new world alligator than an old world crocodile. So maybe more importantly, to answer your question and to explain why, you know, Romeo goes into the apothecary shop and sees an alligator along with all sorts of other odd fishes, Having a stuffed alligator or a stuffed crocodile is, by Shakespeare's day, part of the image of an apothecary's shop. It's part of the standard equipment, at least in the imagination of the early modern period, right? This is how you know that somebody is a learned person who is well-connected in this world of kind of weird and wonderful stuff that they're studying and collecting. Apothecary shops weren't the only place that someone wanted to display their education and how learned and well-connected they were. One of the byproducts of this massive exploration into new worlds that was occurring in the 16th century was the development of something called the Cabinet of Curiosities. Spencer writes about the Wunderkammen that was this cabinet of curiosities, this wonderful things that you put on display. And they were collections of interesting specimens from around the world. And they were displayed not just for an apothecary that might be using parts of these animals to make medicines or lotions or whatever, but an individual owner would show off their culture and intelligence at home. And they were particularly popular among 16th century scientists and naturalists who collected these things. Spencer, how likely was it that a crocodile would have been featured in some of the owners around London who had these cabinets of curiosities? Would this been something that if you went to someone's home, you would see it? So maybe, right? This is the tantalizing bit. This is the bit where we kind of, we hope and we wish and we don't really know. Sure. So exactly as you say, right? A cabinet of curiosity is this early modern kind of craze for putting together these collections of natural objects, historical objects, religious objects, wonders and marvels and curiosity. And it's not just that you have them, it's that you bring them together. 
and you bring them together in a cabinet. And the cabinet is both a sort of proto-museum, a, a place of display where you would invite people in and show them, look at all these, you know, look, I've got coral and look, I've got, you know, this painting and I've got this wonderful shell. Um, but there are also workshops and places of study and places of craft where, you know, as you say, an, an apothecary might do their work. So to take your question in turn, the crocodile is in some ways the emblem of the cabinet of curiosity. In one way of putting it, like, if you don't have a crocodile, you don't really have a cabinet of curiosity. So it's a status symbol, essentially. You it's a status arrived it, when you have the crocodile. Exactly. And you want a big one. You want, you, and, and, and the reason for that is the, the kind of canonical cabinet of curiosity, the one that sort of sets the bar and says, this is what this is, is a cabinet in Naples by a man called Ferrante Imperato. And Imperato publishes you know, a kind of catalog of his collection, which has this splendid image of the cabinet, which is completely dominated by this giant crocodile uh, that's hanging from the ceiling. And so not only does the crocodile become the symbol of the cabinet of curiosity, hanging it from a ceiling becomes the kind of de rigueur, this is where you hang it. This is, you know, you want to do it right, it's got to be up on the ceiling. And I firmly believe that that Imperato put it up there because of the long-established practice of hanging up crocodiles in churches. And appropriately enough for us and for Romeo and Juliet, Imperato is an apothecary. And so his cabinet is very much both proto-museum and workshop. And this is where he's doing the kind of natural historical, natural philosophical work of being an apothecary. So cabinets, definitely. England. I wish, I wish. So, so there are probably private collections, you know, learned people, wealthy people in London, say, who have preserved crocodiles. And, you know, it's quite possible they would have hung them from the ceiling as well. Would Shakespeare have seen them? Probably not. You know, he would know that that's where they would be uh, in the kind of Romeo and Juliet style because he would have seen images of Imperato. But, it, you know, it's kind of an almost, right? It's this tantalizing thing. The first cabinet of curiosities that's kind of properly established in England is a kind of extraordinary collection called the Museum Tradiscantiano, which was probably the, the first public museum in English history. It's actually the ancestor of Oxford's Ashmolean Museum. And it's the work of father and son, John Tradescant the Elder, John Tradescant the Younger. And the collection is housed in this building that's kind of very appropriately called the Ark. It's in Lambeth on the south bank of the Thames. It's not all that far from the globe. And it included all kinds of things. Uh, enormous botanical garden. The Tradescants were, you know, very skilled gardeners and botanists. There's actually a, a lot of plant specimens and species that were first described and are named after the Tradescants. And also historical artifacts. There's a cloak that belongs to Wahun Senaka, the indigenous leader we know as Powhatan, the father of Pocahontas. And not only does the Ark have what's called an alligator or crocodile from Egypt, but there's a crocodile waddling along one side of the Tradescant family tomb, which you can still see in London. But here's the sad part. Tradescant doesn't start displaying his collection until the late 1620s at the very earliest. And so really not until at least kind of 15 years after Shakespeare dies. But I think it's quite likely that some of the kind of 
well-to-do genteel Londoners who may have seen a Shakespeare play at the Globe were also, I mean, some of them would have still been around in the 1630s to visit the Museum Tradescantianum. So, so as for our beloved bard, you know, it's entirely possible he's seen them, but I think it's more likely he's seen them in an apothecary shop or in a market, you know, a, a merchant kind of trading in exotica from the New World. So we've mentioned the concept of displays of stuffed crocodiles and alligators, as well as statues of them. But I wonder about live crocodiles. Were live crocodiles or alligators ever brought back to England to be put on display during Shakespeare's lifetime? Surprisingly enough, they were. And and like many visitors to England, I suspect they were not fond of the weather. You know, we, we really have to feel for them kind of coming from, from the tropics and turning up in London. Uh, there's a wonderful book, you know, I... I recently discovered this wonderful book called Menagerie, the History of Exotic Animals in England by a a retired zoologist and archaeologist called Caroline Grigson, um, which is where I I found a lot of this material. So I just want to shout out to that. Shortly after James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England, he starts smartening up some of the royal properties in London, including St. James's Park. He does a lot of landscaping and he starts keeping deer and ducks and other kind of exotic animals that he gets from around the world. And shortly thereafter, from Hispaniola, the island that's that's now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, he's brought two young crocodiles, probably alligators, and they live in St. James's Park, though we don't know for exactly how long they, they are around. It's also entirely possible that other probably youngish crocodiles or alligators were brought from the tropics uh, and kind of kept alive long enough to get back to England and put on display at fairs and other kind of gathering sites, you know, a big market, either to sort of charge for admission to see them or to sell them. And we have a much later witness to this, uh, John Evelyn, the, the gardener and diarist. In 1684, he visits Bartholomew Fair, he sees a rhinoceros, and he sees, quote, a living crocodile brought from some of the West Indian islands, in every respect resembling the Egyptian crocodile. It was not yet fully two yards from head to tail, very curiously scaled and beset with impenetrable studs of a hard, bony substance. They kept the beast or serpent in a longish tub of warm water and fed him with flesh, etc. So there's no reason that a 16th century merchant couldn't have done the same thing, and that Shakespeare might have seen it, you know, seen a, a crocodile or an alligator in a, you know, tub of warm water in a market in London or at a fair. In the 15th century, just over 100 years prior to Shakespeare, there are paintings that Spencer cited in his work that show very crocodilian-like creatures described as dragons being vanquished by a knight. The concept of dragons being killed by knights was not an outdated idea when Shakespeare was alive, but instead was relatively recent history for the bard and the audiences of his plays. Spencer, was there a prevailing idea floating about to think crocodiles were a kind of dragon? I mean, frankly, I'm not sure crocodiles aren't a kind of dragon. I would agree with that. Yes, yeah, you're right. And and you know, it's a, and I and it's a joke, but it's not entirely a joke, right? You know, we we are so accustomed to seeing crocodiles and alligators and and gharials and caimans in zoos that we forget how marvelous these creatures are. You know, the wonder and the awe and the fear that they evoke. So you know, think about. A Nile crocodile 
can be more than 20 feet long and more than 2,000 pounds. And saltwater crocodiles from, you know, Southeast India and, and the Pacific Ocean area, they get even bigger. And so I think the Europeans who encountered a big crocodile, a big alligator in Egypt or India or Brazil can be forgiven for, for coming home and saying, I saw a dragon. And even if the specimens that, that make it back to Europe are usually smaller, although sometimes they're really big, as in the case of Imperato. Which I can forgive them for that, too, because I'm not going to want to put a 2,000-pound alligator on my ship to carry it home. Right, exactly, exactly. And because they're really, you know, they're, they're bulky. And, and um, Paula Findlay, one, one of the great historians of, of early modern science, says, you know, the, the crocodile is kind of the biggest thing that you can get all of in the early modern period. You know, it, it's the biggest thing you could really display in one room in the 16th century. And, and, and that's exactly right. But it's huge and it's heavy and it's, they're fierce and, you know, they're tough. And so it, they get back to England. And even if it's not a very big crocodile, not a very big alligator, it's a lot bigger than any reptile that's indigenous to Britain. You know, this is much bigger than anything, you know, Shakespeare, you know, would, would have seen in Stratford or, or indeed in London. And on top of that, you have this long tradition of depicting dragons, whether it's Leviathan, whether it's the kind of Chris, Christian dragons of hagiography, you know, the dragon that St. George slays, the dragon that swallows St. Margaret, or the folklore dragons, right, the lambton worm, in ways that look a, an awful lot like crocodiles. And one of the most common stories that gets told about why such and such church has a big, you know, preserved crocodile hanging from the ceiling is that it's actually a dragon. You know, sometimes this was the dragon that was terrorizing the local population. And then a heroic knight came along and killed it and, you know, saved the day. And now we preserve it as a, as a memorial. Um, this is the case, for example, uh, there's a crocodile in Santa Maria del Monte in Varese, not far from Lake Como uh, in Northern Italy. Um, but sometimes it's, you know, I was on crusade in Egypt or the Holy Land, and I met a dragon, as you do when you're on crusade, and I killed it, and I sent it home as an ex voto, as an offering of thanksgiving to God for my, you know, safety and, and success. And so, for example, there's, there's a crocodile in the Pyrenees in um, the church at uh, Saint-Bertrand de Comanges, and that's what they say about it, that this was a crusader trophy. When Shakespeare describes crocodiles in Henry VI, Part Two, he does so by having Queen Margaret say that crocodiles are, quote, these creatures that snare relenting passengers, end quote, which suggests crocodiles are seen as rather deceitful, even untrustworthy creatures. Given their association with the Leviathan, which was a sea monster, were crocodiles also associated with evil specifically for Shakespeare's lifetime? Yes. Crocodiles do not have the best press in the early modern period. Um, they're associated with basically every kind of scaly villain of Christian history. Leviathan, the serpent of the Garden of Eden, the dragon of Revelation, with the gates of hell itself, right? There's this fascinating tradition in medieval illustrations of what's called Hellmouth, right? Where the gates of hell are not gates like we think of them. It's the jaws of this kind of enormous creature and these really terrifying visions of, of a sort of crocodilian mouth, and that's how you get down to hell. But it's not just the Christian tradition 
The father of natural history, Pliny the Elder, is not very fond of crocodiles. Quote, it is a curse on four legs and equally pernicious on land and in the river. The later Roman writer Elian says the crocodile, quote, is naturally timid of an evil disposition and thoroughly villainous. He actually claims that crocodiles will kind of scoop up water in their mouths and scatter it on paths so it becomes really slippery. And then, you know, somebody will, you know, come walking along and slip down the mudslide and then the crocodile will eat them. He says that the crocodile will cover itself with driftwood and then kind of stealth mode, kind of sneak along the riverbank until it can find somebody to to snatch, which, you know, makes sense when you think about crocodiles kind of floating in the water looking like logs. You know, they, they are very stealthy creatures. Uh, and he concludes, so much for the innate wickedness and villainy of crocodiles. So they really, they are associated with some bad stuff. Another place that we see or get a glimpse of what Shakespeare would have thought of or associated with crocodiles shows up in his play Othello. Othello himself says, quote, if that the earth could teem with woman's tears, each drop she falls would prove a crocodile, end quote. This comes from Act 4, Scene 1. And this phrase is one place we get the modern idiomatic expression to cry crocodile tears. But Spencer, explain for us what the beliefs were about crocodiles during Shakespeare's lifetime that made them associated with fake tears. So, so this is a very old tradition. It, it goes back as far as Roman times, but kind of really gets play in the Middle Ages and the early modern period um, that kind of seals this association of crocodiles with hypocrisy and falsehood. And there's two explanations for this. The older one, which goes back, as I say, to Roman times, uh, is the one that Othello is referencing, which is sort of nicely encapsulated by the medieval scholastic theologian Bartholomeus Anglicus, who's an an English Franciscan who kind of spends his life teaching in, in Paris. Quote, if the crocodile findeth a man by the brim of the water or by the cliff, he slayeth him if he may, and then he weepeth upon him and swalloweth him at the last. So this idea that a lot of people in the early modern period firmly believed was that crocodiles will eat a human being or or anything else really, but then they'll weep over it and mourn for the thing they've just killed and eaten. And so by Shakespeare's day, this is really well established in natural history, but also in cultural depictions of crocodiles, as in the line from Othello. There's an emblem book published in 1605 that features an emblem that kind of shows a, a crocodile weeping over the body of a human that it's presumably about to now eat, with the the kind of title, the the emblem legend, devorat et plorat, it eats and it weeps, and then a, a couplet below that kind of describes, uh, you know, hypocrisy and friendship and and how a true friend is not like the crocodile who will eat you but then cry about having eaten you. There's another version of the crocodile tears, just another form of hypocrisy and deceit, which is actually what Margaret is referencing in the line you quoted a little while ago. So this is one that actually comes, as far as I know, from Edward Topsell, the, the naturalist who I quoted at the beginning on describing serpents that might include bees. Um, so he writes, quote, there are not many brute beasts that can weep, but such is the nature of the crocodile that to get a man within his danger, that is where he can kind of get at him, he will sob, sigh, and weep as though he were in extremity, but suddenly he destroyeth him. 
So there's this idea, at least as far as Topsil's concerned, that crocodiles will weep and moan and sound like a human being in distress so that, you know, the, the, the relenting passenger, you know, the traveler who's kind of walking along, hears somebody who sounds like they're hurt or, or in need, and they'll come looking to try and help, and then the crocodile will eat them. So again, an, another form of hypocrisy and another way that the crocodile is seen to be deceitful. We were to visit England today, or even perhaps Italy and France, as you mentioned a couple of sites there. Do you know of any iconography or cabinets of curiosity even that still include displays of crocodiles which date back to Shakespeare's lifetime, things that would that are still there that would have been in place for Shakespeare. You know, getting back to Shakespeare's time in England is hard for this kind of thing. You know, the, the upheavals of the Reformation got rid of the crocodiles along with so much else that was in the medieval English church. And, you know, a lot of the early collections and museums from this period have been dispersed and lost over the years, sad to say. Um, it's easier on the continent. When I wrote my article about early modern crocodiles, my, my favorite part of writing this article was that I, I put together a list of all of the crocodiles in the churches and other kind of public spaces of the early modern period that are still around. And there's, there's about two dozen of them. And there's actually more because my list is absolutely incomplete. They're mostly in Italy and Spain and France, but there's some in Germany, there's some in Portugal, there's some in the Czech Republic. Um, So they are there. And some of them are from Shakespeare's time. Some of them are much older, some from the 12th century. In England, there is a crocodile hanging from the ceiling in the Royal Pharmaceutical Society Museum, which is near the Tower of London. Nobody seems to know exactly how old this crocodile is or where it came from, but it's again that that association with the apothecary and with the pharmacy that I, I would presume is kind of why it's there, but it is there and you can see it. There's also some some pretty wonderful, but as I say, generally more modern crocodile iconography in England. Tradescan's tomb which is in the premises of the Garden Museum in London, uh, as I mentioned, has a very nice crocodile in homage to the one that he had in, in the Ark. There is a crocodile built into the masonry, uh, or the image of a crocodile, built into the masonry at Mond Laboratory at the uh, Department of Physics at the University of Cambridge. It's done by a very strange English artist called Eric Gill which you can see, and there's, there's good pictures of it online. Um, and then the last thing I just have to put in a plug for, because I, I'm, I'm just always astonished that this thing is there. In Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire, there is a zoological garden called Crocodiles of the World. So there's a whole set of different kinds of crocodiles and alligators and caimans and gharials in Oxfordshire, which, which you can go see. So, uh, so, you know, they're still there. That's fantastic. We will link to several of these in the show notes for today's episode, as well as to Spencer's full article. So you can see his list of two dozen places where you can see remnants of this part of Shakespeare's culture um, on, on, as he says, the continent. And for the uninitiated, the phrase on the continent refers to the greater space there of Europe outside of England. 
So Spencer, I know that we are really excited to learn more about this topic, and you've mentioned some great resources for us today, but I wonder if you have any favorite books that you could recommend we use to learn more. Absolutely. So the, the best thing on kind of getting, getting your head into this world of exotic collections and the trade in, in kind of wonderful objects and marvels is the great Paula Findland's Possessing Nature museums collecting and scientific culture in early modern Italy. It's really the one-stop shop for understanding this world, that a crocodile is this this fabulous object. And uh, Paula Finland also has a lecture that she gave on early modern crocodiles uh, that she gave at, at Bard, the Bard Graduate Center, back in 2015, which is available on YouTube, which I highly recommend. The other two things I will just name, one for, for Shakespearean crocodile enthusiasts, Rodri Lewis has an article called Romans, Egyptians, and Crocodiles in Shakespeare Quarterly, which is a just phenomenally learned study of that scene in Antony and Cleopatra where Lepidus asked, what manner of thing is your crocodile? Uh, and goes into the deep rhetorical tradition that Shakespeare is nodding to in that fabulous scene. And then there is a thing called bestiary.ca, which is a truly brilliant online resource that collects the classical and medieval lore surrounding the animals of the medieval bestiary, these these, uh, collections of animals and animal stories from the Middle Ages. And it has an excellent entry on crocodiles, and it is lavishly illustrated with with all kinds of references to uh, manuscript illustrations and, and, you know, links to Pliny and Isidore and and all of the texts that uh, medieval and early modern, early, uh, you know, uh, naturalists and, and natural philosophers would have known and been referencing. These are great recommendations for sure. All of these resources, as well as links to Spencer's work, will be in the show notes for today's episode. So it's going to be a jam-packed show notes for this week. Make sure you go over there to get all of the great stuff. Spencer, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, the good good desert island discs uh, etiquette there. I love it. I you know I I would want something you know again kind of cabinets of curiosity stuff. I want something massive and strange, right? Something like Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, one of these big books that has just big collections of of quotations and lore and anecdotes that I could go back to again and again and always find a marvel. I think that's an excellent selection for your desert island. You'll be well set up with that one. (laughs) Exactly. Last a while with that. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So I'm working on my dissertation, which is a history of solitary confinement from the late Middle Ages to the 19th century. So I do a lot with prison history. Um, But I'm also working on the history of the first Bible in Spanish that's printed in its entirety. It's called the Reina Valera Bible. Uh, And I'm working on the history of false messiahs and people who claim to be Jesus Christ. Well, you have a lot of exciting things that you are putting together there. I keep busy. I keep busy. 
We'll look forward to seeing these come to fruition and definitely with keeping up with you. Spencer Weinreich, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of crocodiles in Shakespeare's England. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you. It's been an utter delight. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode. Those detailed illustrations of early modern crocodiles, examples of cabinets of curiosity, and links to Edward Topsell and the other natural historians mentioned in today's episode are packed into the show notes along with direct links to Spencer's work and the resources he recommends for you to explore this topic further. Find all these things at castycash.com slash episode 163. That's castycash.com slash EP163. Don't forget that the video version of our episode today is a great place to see the many visual elements we talk about in the interview while you're joining us for the conversation. The first half of the video version is available for free on YouTube at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you'd like the full video version of today's episode, along with animated plays, archaeological site footage, history documentaries, and more, then check out the digital streaming app for that Shakespeare life. It's packed with tons of video content all about the life of William Shakespeare. Find that at castycash.com slash app. That's castycash.com slash A-P-P. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.